morning we're going to uh, be continuing our sermon series, our summer sermon series, from the book of Proverbs. And today we come to the topic of, of marriage. You may notice in your worship guide it says marriage and dating. But because of time we're going to focus on marriage, we'll pick up dating a little bit later, uh, a different Sunday. Now, now the book of Proverbs doesn't have a lot that uh, mentions marriages specifically. But it does have a lot to say about uh, relationships in general. What it does have to say about marriage, it says mostly about the wife, as the book of Proverbs was written by a man. It doesn't mean, of course, that it's not relevant to both husbands and wives, but it helps us to know that it was written by a man who was directed and inspired by God's Holy Spirit. So what we're going to be doing this morning is we'll be looking at a few Proverbs, along with, Genesis, or along with the, the one that was just read, as well as looking at Genesis chapter 2, sort of a parallel passage on marriage for more specific instructions about God's design and purpose for the relationship between a, a husband and a wife. But first, let's check out a couple of the Proverbs. The passage that was just read, Proverbs 31, is a great passage which champions the virtues of a, of a wonderful, godly wife. And it reinforces the gift that she is to, her, to her, her family and to her community. Verse 10, a wife of noble character, who can find? She is worth far more than rubies. Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. Then the rest of the chapter goes on to describe her incredible character, demonstrated by how she cares for her family, how she runs the household, how she cares for the poor, how she handles finances. Verse 25 said, She is clothed with strength and dignity. She can laugh at days to come. Verse 28, Her children arise and call her blessed. How many of you guys call your mom blessed when you wake up in the morning? Her husband also, and he praises her. Proverbs 5.18 tells husbands to rejoice in the wife of your youth. Proverbs 18.22 speaks of the importance of, of marrying well, of marrying character. A wife of noble character is her husband's crown, but a disgraceful wife is like decay in his bones. And what's good for the goose is good for the gander here. It certainly applies to a husband's character as well. Now, I was thinking of focusing my message on a couple of Proverbs from chapter 21, uh, but uh, as I thought about it and prayed about it, I, I thought better of it. When you hear uh, me read them, you'll understand why. Proverbs 21.9, better to live on a corner of the roof than share a house with a quarrelsome wife. We'll talk about that sometime on a men's only retreat. And just so you know, I have no personal experience with that whatsoever. I can't relate at all. So, uh, And just so you, it's, you can kind of sort of imagine the writer of Proverbs Penning this other one coming out of chapter 21, coming out of a fight with his wife. Better to live in a desert than with a quarrelsome and ill-tempered wife. Again, this is true for husbands. We can get cranky too. But there's one more, and I would, I would handle this one with, very, with, with lots of care, guys, when your wife gets on you about not getting things done around the house. Proverbs 27:15. A quarrelsome wife is like a constant dripping on a rainy day. Again, no personal experience. So, joking aside, marriage is, is a very, a very serious matter, uh, because marriage matters to God. A little ditty says, "A wedding is the place to start; a marriage is a kind of art." And that's true. I just did a wedding yesterday, and right before the wedding, I was talking to the, the groom, and he was getting a little bit nervous. And I said, "Just relax. Even if it doesn't come off perfectly, what you're really going after is not a great wedding. You want that." but you want a great relationship, a great marriage. That's what, a wedding is relatively easy to pull off. 
within to a certain degree, but a marriage is extremely challenging. Statistics show that those who are married live longer and are happier. Marriage matters to, to kids as well. Surveys show that kids who grow up in a house where the parents are married are far more, like, are far more likely to do well in school, to avoid a teen pregnancy, to stay out of trouble, and to graduate from college. And marriage matters to God. We can see it in Genesis chapter 2, where God plays the matchmaker and brings Adam and Eve together, and the first marriage occurs. I'm going to ask you to turn with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 2, and we'll look at the account of, of the first marriage. Genesis chapter 2, verse, uh, verse 18 through 25. Verse 18. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now, God did not ordain marriage on a whim. He didn't give Eve to Adam as a lark. God has high purposes and, and high expectations for marriage. And with his high purposes and expectations come great rewards for those who choose to do it God's way. Now, I know for some of us here this morning, this is not a happy topic, prospect to talk about marriage. For some males, a focus on marriage is kind of a stretch beyond their comfort zone. I came across a quote a while back that said, Men are like mascara. They run at the first sign of emotion. We're going to try to make this as guy-friendly as possible this morning. For others here this morning, you're not married, and you want to be married, and, but yet it's not happening. And so you wonder what God's purpose and plan for you is in your life. Some of you are, are young and single, and so you can kind of see this as a, a, preview, a preview of coming attractions. For others, you may have been down the prospect of been down the path of marriage, but it didn't work out, and you were hurt in the process. I believe wherever you're at in the spectrum, God can speak to you through His Word this morning, either to prepare you for a future marriage, to help you in a struggling marriage, or to help you be an encouragement to those of your friends and family who are married. Now, marriage, as we all know, is full of surprises. Maybe you heard about the guy who fell in love with an opera singer. He uh, admired her from afar through his binocular from the third balcony. He was convinced that he could live happily ever after with her just because of her voice. What an incredible voice. He, his heart soared to the heights when he heard her sing. And it made him blind to everything else. He scarcely noticed that she was considerably older than he was, and he didn't care that she walked with a limp. Her mezzo-soprano voice would carry them through whatever life might throw their way. And so after a whirlwind romance and a, and a hurry-up ceremony, they went off for the honeymoon together. And then the surprises began. She began to prepare for their first night together. She plucked out her glass eye and put it on the nightstand. She pulled off her wig, ripped off her false eyelashes, 
yanked out her dentures, unstrapped her artificial leg, took off her glasses that hid her hearing aid, and stunned and horrified, all I could get out was, Sing, woman, for God's sake, sing, sing, sing. <laughs> Marriage is full of surprises. Marriage is also full of rewards, the best of which we will only enjoy if we do it God's way. Which begs the question, what is God's design and purpose for marriage? So let's first, before we look at three purposes we're going to pull out of this passage, let's take a look at some, some background material here. Let's take a look at the creation of Eve. Why did God need to create woman? God could have continued to propagate, promulgate the, the human race by just cranking out men. But he, he didn't. He made woman. Verse 18. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And it lists all the birds of the, of the field and the birds of the air, or the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea. But it says, But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. The first thing we need to clear up is what it means that Eve is created as a helper for Adam. It doesn't mean that Eve is some sort of assistant who has a, a lesser role. In fact, the Bible in several cases, when describing God, uses the same Hebrew word helper that is used here to describe Eve. It essentially describes someone who provides what is lacking in the other, someone who comes alongside, someone who is complementary to the other. That's complementary with an E, not an I, although compliments with an I also don't hurt a marriage. In fact, when psychologists... Uh, Cliff Notarius and Howard Markham studied newlyweds for the first decade of marriage. They discovered that couples who stayed together uttered five or fewer put-downs in every 100 comments to each other. Those who uttered twice as many, 10 or more put-downs out of every 100 comments, divorced three-fourths of the time. They found that little nitpicking comments are like a, a cancer or disease in a marriage, slowly draining the life out of a committed relationship. Anyway, something else which points to the nature of Eve's relationship to Adam is found in verse 21. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken from out of the man, and he brought her to the man. Now people over the years have drawn different ideas and conclusions from the fact that Eve was created from Adam, that she was created from his side. For instance, there was a little boy who came home from Sunday school one day, and he was very excited. He had just learned the story of Adam and Eve and how Eve was created from, from Adam's rib. But a few days later, he came to his mom with a, with a concerned look on his face, and he was in some pain. He said to his mom, Mommy, my side hurts. I think I'm having a wife. <laughs> there are a lot of ways we could go with that one, too, but I'm just going to let that one lie there. But, but I think there's significance in the fact that Eve was created from Adam's rib. Matthew Henry put it this way, Woman was not taken from man's feet as if she was under him. Woman was not taken from man's head as if she were over him, but from his side as an equal with him. So not only was Eve created to be a helper in the sense of complementary, she was also created to be Adam's partner, his equal, to be by his side throughout their life together. There's one more reason that Eve was created. Six times in Genesis chapter 1, in the process of creating the world and all the living things in it, God stops in his work and says, it is good. In verse 18, for the first time, God stops and says, it is not good. 
it is not good for man to be alone. Every other creature, he says in a sense, has a partner, but Adam is alone and it is not good. So that brings us to God's first expressed purpose for marriage, and that's companionship, friendship. God has created all of us to be in, in community. And we are to love and support and encourage each other as we go through life together. People can think of just about anything, but total isolation from human contact starves us. It shrivels us up. That's why about the worst thing you can do to a prisoner is put them in, in solitary confinement. We are created to be in a relationship with others. And marriage is to be the most intimate of relationships, of friendships. You know, looking back over the, over the years, one of the things that I've most appreciated uh, in my dating relationship with Nancy when we first started dating over 23, 24 years ago, been married 22 years, uh, was that our relationship began not as a romantic dating relationship, but it began as a friendship. In fact, we sort of chummed around for about four months before um, I finally made a move. It, it was Easter, and my, my, my parents had come to Indiana where I was working as a youth pastor. She was working with a campus ministry at Purdue, and, and they had come to church, and, and, and they met her for the first time, and then they took off and came back to Kansas, and we spent the rest of the day together. Sort of, a, We played tennis, we kind of hung out, we had dinner, and then we uh, had popcorn and watched SportsCenter, sort of a guy's dream date. You know. So we're sitting on the, court, on the couch eating popcorn, watching Sports Center, pretty close to each other, and, and, and I made my move. I was pretty smooth. I kind of reached for the popcorn and put my arm around her shoulder, and it was kind of, you know, kind of one of those moves. And she kind of sunk back into my arms, and I thought, this is very nice. But then a guy's worst nightmare. She popped up and said, let's talk about this. I'm like, just go with the moment, okay? Let's go with the flow. <laughs> just chill, relax. It's all good, you know. But, but no, but no. And we had the DTR, the Define the Relationship Talk. So we, we talked about, okay, what are we feeling? What are we thinking? We don't want to make sure it's what God wants. So we're great friends. So to make sure we don't ruin the friendship, let's see if he wants us to do more. So we said, we'll pray for a week. We'll get back together. And we'll see if God wants us to go to the next stage. And we're still praying about it. So, <laughs> But... Uh, the greatest gift my, my wife Nancy has brought to me is, is her friendship. It's, it's an awesome and holy thing to, to have a partner that you can go through life with. You can laugh. You can cry. You can mourn. You can dream. You can struggle. You can celebrate. You can play. You can, you can love with each other. It's an incredible gift, and I'm excited to see where, where God takes that relationship in the coming years. But it's not always easy. That friendship has to be developed. The pressures of, of life come against any couple. Things like careers, work pressures, health issues, finances. And, and the friendship that God has designed and intended for a husband and wife can get squeezed. Great gifts, for example, kids, can divide your attention, your time, your energy, and your marriage becomes stagnant or less than you want. Sometimes parents make the big mistake of putting their kids' relationship above the relationship with a spouse. And I always tell them, you're going to be with your kids 18 years in your house. You're going to be with your spouse, hopefully 50, 60, 70 years. The best thing you can do for your kids is put your relationship with your spouse first after your relationship with Jesus Christ. But to experience that kind of relationship that God intends in marriage, we must invest in that marriage regularly and intentionally. Think about how we do it with our cars. We rotate the tires. We change the oil. If it makes noise, we get, the, we get it looked at. 
think about with our bodies. We have yearly checkups. We try to exercise. We try to eat right. If, something, if we're running, we feel something in our chest, we get it checked out. Think about our finances. We have a plan and a purpose for our finances. But how many of us are intentional and have a plan and a purpose for our marriages? Regular checkups, investment in our relationship. If there's signs of trouble, have it get looked at. Check it out. Let's talk about it. Let's figure things out. We have to be intentional to see that relationship, that first purpose of God's design for marriage, the companionship, the friendship. We have to be intentional to see that grow and thrive. It's because it's the foundation for the rest of the marriage. Think about back to when you're dating. You pursue each other. You think about each other. You want to know everything about the other person. In marriage, we are still to court and cherish our wives throughout marriage, men. And, and, and wives, we're still to make our husbands feel special and wonderful and awesome. But to do that, we must intentionally take time to build the first purpose of marriage, companionship. Now take a look at verse 24. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Now this verse is so important that it's quoted four times in the Bible, two times by Jesus himself. Why is that? I believe that there are two critical steps that are included that if not done, will wreak havoc in your marriage and prevent you from experiencing another of God's purposes for marriage, found in Genesis 2. And the two steps are simply to leave and to cleave. First, let's look at what it means to leave. For marriage to be successful, leaving must take place. This doesn't mean that we abandon our relationship with our friends and family when we get married. But it does mean that there has to be a shift not only in location of where we live, but also a shift in relational priorities. As I said just a minute ago, nothing other than our relationship with God should ever come before you and your relationship with your spouse. Not your family, your job, your hobbies, not even your children should take the primary place of your spouse. They are to be number one in the order of earthly relationships. And for us to be able to leave, sometimes that means we have to let go of things from the past or the present. Sometimes relationships that are not beneficial need to be um, backed away from or distanced. Sometimes past hobbies or interests that demand too much of our time need to be let go or cut back. And in some cases, even the demands of work need to be sacrificed for the stability of our marriage. Now, to cleave means um, to come together. It's in the, old, in, the new, in the King James Version, it says to leave and to cleave. But here it just says to leave and, and be with their wife. And, and, and cleaving is the idea of, of, of clinging to, adhering to, sticking fast to, uh, being joined together. In the, in the Greek, in the New Testament, it has the idea of, of cement, of, of sticking together like superglue, being welded together in such a way that it cannot be separated without significant damage to both. Think about the husband and wife relationship as two pieces of paper that are glued together with superglue. If you try to separate two such pieces of paper, what happens? Both of them are torn and ripped and damaged. If you try to separate husband and wife, both are hurt. And in the cases where they have children, the children are hurt too. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 19, 6, Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And that brings us to God's second purpose for marriage as found in Genesis 2, which is oneness or, or unity. The first was companionship. The second is oneness. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. 
Now, we might begin to be tempted to think of oneness like mixing paint at a, at a paint store. You pick out two colors and you ask them to blend together to make the color you want. But in the process, the two colors lose their distinctiveness, don't they? You take blue and yellow and you mix them together and you get green. All you have left is green. Blue and yellow are no longer distinguishable. Um, they've lost their identity. That is not the biblical concept of oneness in marriage. It's more like taking two colors of thread and, and weaving them together to make a beautiful garment. The threads are still distinguishable. They have their own individual characteristics and identity, yet they're joined together to form one beautiful, God-honoring, useful garment. That analogy helps, but it's still a little bit incomplete. Think of a, a braid, a braid of hair. Catherine Paxson writes this. A braid appears to contain only two strands of hair, but it is impossible to create a braid with only two strands. If the two could be put together at all, they would quickly unravel. Herein lies the mystery, she writes. What looks like two strands requires a third. The third strand, though not immediately evident, keeps the, the braid tightly woven, woven. Then she concludes, In a Christian marriage, God's presence, like the third strand in the braid, holds husband and wife together. Without Christ, it's impossible to achieve lasting oneness. Even with Christ, it's a challenge. We do not achieve oneness and then rest on our laurels. Every day there must be a cleaving, a clinging to, where, where emotionally and mentally, physically and spiritually, a husband and wife become one. I like to think of marriage like a continuum. Every marriage is somewhere between isolation and, and oneness. As you think about your own marriage, where are you on that continuum? Closer to isolation or closer to oneness? Are your hearts and your lives and your minds and your priorities and your, your values, your purposes, are they knit together or are they unraveling a little bit? They can only be knit together powerfully when the Lord Jesus Christ is the third strand holding everything together. We've all seen this and heard the statistics on marriage and divorce, and as we know, they're not pretty. Something like one in two, close to a little bit around that. And, and the sad thing is the numbers are virtually the same in the church as they're outside the church. And you begin to think, does it make a difference? But if you look closer, you discover that active growing faith based upon a relationship with Jesus Christ does make a difference. There was a study by, of all groups, Harvard back in the 90s, where they did a study on this, and they saw that in couples that go to church together on a regular basis, in couples that pray together on a regular basis, and in couples who read the Bible together on a regular basis, guess what the divorce rate is? One out of 1,012. The reason? They have put Jesus Christ smack dab in the middle of their relationship, and they seek his help and his guidance and, and his presence on a regular basis, not just individually, but together. And Jesus binds them together as one. In Genesis chapter 2, Jesus, or God's first purpose is, is companionship, second is oneness, and his third is acceptance and love. Take a look at verse 25. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now, I don't know at what age we begin to feel self-conscious about nudity, but I know it's not two or three. You know, when you have kids, when they're toddlers, they, they usually find great joy at some point in dropping their diaper and just running around the house screaming. They're very comfortable, not embarrassed, very comfortable in their, 
own skin, no shame, no fear of rejection. And that's the way it was for Adam and Eve before the fall. It says, the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. What a beautiful description of what God's original purpose and design is for marriage. God intends for marriage to be the safest place on planet Earth for the husband and the wife. But from the time we hit the playground in kindergarten, we learned over and over again that the world is not a safe place, that we do feel shame, and people love to point out our flaws. Think about what happens just after Genesis 2 in Genesis chapter 3. Remember what happens? Satan comes into the picture, tempts Eve, Eve gets involved, she tempts, you know, she's used to, to tempt Adam, they fall into sin. And what happens? Where before in chapter 2, they're totally transparent physically and otherwise, after sin enters the picture, they feel awkward, they feel self-conscious, they cover up themselves physically, and they begin to cover themselves up emotionally, and they hide. They hide from God, and they hide from each other. And as human beings in the human race, we've been doing that ever since. That's what sin does in our lives. But marriage, God's design for marriage, is that it's an utterly safe place where you can let down your guard, where you can know and be known, the place where you're accepted for who you are, warts and all. It is to be a place where we're not compared to others and found wanting in the process, where we're accepted for who we are and not rejected for who we aren't. A negative example of this is a woman who went to the police station with her next-door neighbor to report that her husband was missing. The policeman asked for a description. She said he's 45, 6'3", blue eyes, blonde hair, athletic build, and is soft-spoken. The neighbor said, no, wait a minute. Your husband is 5'3", bald, chubby, and has a big mouth. The wife said, well, who wants him back? (laughs) God's intention and purpose for marriage is that above all, it's where we find acceptance and grace and we can trust and we're loved. And when God, when Genesis describes Adam and Eve as both being naked, it's much more than a physical transparency. It points to the goal and intention of marriage, to a state in marriage where you're vulnerable emotionally and intellectually and spiritually, and yet you're safe, you're accepted, you're loved, you're transparent. And it's okay. Now, qualifier acceptance does not mean that we accept everything that our spouse does, if that means accepting behavior or thinking that is destructive and harmful to them and to your marriage and children. That is not love, and we're called to love one another as Christ loves us. What it does mean is that you will not reject or ridicule your spouse, you'll operate out of grace, not judgment. It means you will receive your spouse as God himself has received and accepted you. God cares deeply about marriages. He's created marriage on purpose so that in marriage we'll find companionship, we'll find oneness, we'll find acceptance and love. All for the glory of God. A few years ago, Billboards were springing up in the South as a campaign to get people to kind of re-examine their relationship with God. And one billboard said this, Love the wedding. Invite me to the marriage. God. Perhaps your marriage isn't all that you want to be. 
maybe you're not experiencing that growing friendship or that oneness or that acceptance or love that we've talked about this morning. Maybe you're struggling. Maybe your feelings are drying up, aren't what you want them to be. Maybe you're motivated to work on a relationship, but your spouse isn't. Maybe they're willing to motivate. They're motivated, but you're not. Maybe neither one of you are motivated. But there is hope. There is hope that we need to invite Jesus Christ, not just to the wedding, but to invite him to the marriage. And as we do so, through God's spirit, through his help, through his protection, through his guidance, you'll begin to see your marriage grow and be a source of companionship and oneness and love and acceptance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you today, and God, we thank you for your word of truth. We thank you for um, the fact that we are loved and accepted by you because of what Jesus Christ has done. We are not rejected because of our sin, but we are loved and accepted because of Jesus' perfect sacrifice on our behalf. Lord, we come before you today, and um, we thank you for that. We want to begin with that in mind, and we pray for the marriages in our church. We pray that you would strengthen them, that, um, that if marriages are already thriving, that they would continue to thrive, and that you'd protect them from any outside influence that will drive a wedge. If there are marriages that are struggling, we pray that you would strengthen them and, and help them to, to humbly ask for your help and to come together as a couple and to, and to grow and develop. Father, we, um, we pray for those who have gone through tough marriages, who are, are widowed or who are divorced. We pray, Father, for your peace upon them, your strength and your healing. And Father, we pray for those who are single, looking forward to marriage. Help them to choose wisely and to seek your will. And for those who are single and want to be married but aren't, Lord, we pray that you would help them and comfort them and, and be their strength and help them to, to seek your purpose in, in their current situation and to trust and wait on you. Father, again, we thank you for your truth. And we thank you that um, you've called us in marriage to, to be great friends, to be unified, to point others to you and to be loved and accepted. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.